there's some stuff going on in the world right now. You think? We're going to talk about it. Which means that this is going to be a long episode. This is not going to be an hour of your life. We'll see how long it goes. If it goes too long, we'll maybe cut it and do a part two, but I'd like to get it all done tonight. If I, I think we need to get it all in one show because it all ties together and dovetails nicely. I made a nice little, uh, uh, what's the word, outline, and it all dovetails nicely. So I would like to get it in, but just know that it, it, will, it will take longer than an hour. And also a disclaimer right up front, neither one of us are Russian or Ukrainian speaking. Uh, I'm barely French speaking and not German speaking at all. So point is, we're going to butcher some names. You think we ought to say who we are, Kim? Oh, yeah. Uh, you're listening to An Hour of Your Life. <laughs> and my name is Kim. And my name is Steve. And we decided... Um, I, so I kind of decided... I, I decided to do a couple of TikToks, uh, what, last week, I think... Um, about the situation in Ukraine and kind of how we got here. And because I realized that a lot of younger people don't know about the Soviet Union. They don't know about Ukraine. They don't know about a lot of the stuff that is involved in the war that is currently going on. So I made a three-part TikTok um, and several people seem to like it. And Steve had the idea, well, why don't we, since you've already kind of started doing research on it, why don't we go ahead and expand our research and do a show? And that brings us to here now. Okay. So, um, look, I, I do want to say if you're watching the news, we have heard all the experts tell us every scenario to how this is going to end up in either World War III and nuclear war. The Putin's people are going to revolt and remove him from office, and this will all be over soon. So we are not going to be giving our expert opinion because we just don't know and I seriously doubt if any of the experts on TV actually know either. If they did, they would all be coming up with the same conclusions. But <laughs> it's just such a wide spectrum. Not. It's, it's not. So this episode is not going to be a show on our opinion on how, how things are going to end. We're simply going to try to sort out some of the things that we hear questions about and bring a little bit of clarity to a very complex situation. Now... This isn't going to be the know-all and tell-all to everything. No. It is simply broken down. It's not going to get into all the politics and everything like that. It's just going to bring out some facts. We'll get into a little, facts. a little bit of the politics. So we're going to talk about um, the history of Ukraine and kind of how it came to be, the leaders that are involved, um, NATO and the EU and what that the history of those are and what that has to do with anything. And then finally, we're going to end up with the International Criminal Court. Yeah. And we'll spend a lot of time on NATO because they are, you know, obviously, aside from Ukraine, they are a key player in what's happening in, yeah. in bringing about um, the situation. And I don't want to say bringing about the situation. The Russians did that. But key players in the in the development. In the development of the situation. Yeah. Good word there, Kim. All right. So first up, let's talk history. Ukraine used to be part of the Soviet Union. Now, after Tsar Nicholas II was ousted from power in 1917, he's Anastasia's father, in case you're keeping score, uh, the areas that had been under Russian control were without a leader. So they developed councils, or Soviets, and together they formed the Soviet Union in 1922. Eventually, the Soviet Union included 15 republics, Russia, which was by far the largest, Ukraine, Georgia, Belarusia, which is Belarus now, Uzbekistan, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Moldova, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. They got all the stones. Yes. <laughs> Although there was never an Official leader in 1924, Joseph Stalin of Russia consolidated power because Russia was bigger than all the other ones put together, and a Russian led under a variety of titles, all of ba which basically meant dictator. A lot of stuff happened that isn't super relevant to our episode today, but let's just say that the cooperation of Western nations started to look really good to the individual Soviet republics. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania declared their independence, and soon other states started revolutions of their own. On December 25th, 1991, 
USSR leader Mikhail Gorbachev relinquished power and the Soviet Union just ceased to exist. Boris Yeltsin became the president of Russia and the other nations were left to fend for themselves. Now, our buddies in Ukraine had declared independence in August 1991. Their first president was Leonid Kravchuk. Leonid Kravchuk, I think. Yeah. Who Again, led, who led from who led from 1991 to 1994 and described himself as a man who preferred to take an umbrella because he hoped to slip between the raindrops. His prime minister Leonid Kuchma ran for president and won on a platform of boosting the economy by restoring ties with Russia. He served a second term but didn't even bother to really try to hide his corruption, which included shady arms deals and the possible murder of a journalist. In 2004, two guys with similar sounding names ran for office. So pay attention because I'm going to keep butchering names here. Viktor Yanovich was pro-Russian and longed for the good old days of the USSR. He was supported not only by the Russian Federation, but also by Kuchma, who, which really tells you all you need to know. His opponent, Viktor Yesh. Niko. Yanukovych, Viktor Yanukovych was the pro-Russian guy and Viktor Yushchenko was the opponent. And he wanted the nation to become <laughs> more westernized and join the European Union, which we will discuss later. Now, this was a fiasco to put up mildly. Pro-Western Yushchenko was poisoned but recovered, and it's pretty much assumed that the pro-Eastern Yanukovych and his buddies were behind it. The final vote between the two was so close that Ukrainian law dictated that there had to be a runoff. During all this, there were protests, sit-ins, and other citizen activities against the corruption in, in the politics that was called the Orange Revolution. The runoff election was also close, and revolutionaries accused the pro-Eastern crew of vote rigging to the point of where it was agreed that there would be a second runoff. Pro-Western Yushchenko won, but his popularity tanked during his term. In 2010, Pro-Eastern Yanukovych was elected and was sketchy and awful. He, he limited the press, abused his power, and in 2013, backed out on an agreement with the EU. Citizens were furious. Calling Yanukovych a Russian puppet... The citizens of Kiev, the capital, set up camp in the city square and fought hard against him and his corruption. There is an excellent documentary on Netflix called Fire in Winter that covers these riots, and I highly recommend you watch it. The protesters were successful, and in late February 2014, Yanukovych fled Ukraine in the middle of the night seeking asylum in Russia. Um, he's still around, and if you've been listening to the news, you might hear his name. Putin is trying to, thats he's a bargaining chip. Putin is trying to put him back into power in Ukraine right now. So that's the same guy that you might hear about now. About a month after Yanukovych left, Russia, quote-unquote, annexed the Crimean Peninsula, which basically means they came into Ukrainian territory and stole their land at gunpoint. By May... Two regions in the south and west that had been traditionally pro-Russian had declared their independence from Ukraine. That is, um, and this sets off what's been called the War of Donbass. So when you hear about the Donbass region, that's what we're talking about. It's a very contentious region. Um, that war has been going on for the last eight years between pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian forces with citizens kind of caught in the middle. In 2014, Petro Poroshenko was elected, and he did more than any other Ukrainian leader to that point to improve the nation. He strengthened ties with the EU and Western nations. He started to work toward Ukrainian membership in NATO, which we're also going to get to later. He established a police force that was much less corrupt than its thuggish predecessor, and he solidified the Ukrainian military. Now, don't get me wrong, there was also a lot of political scandal within Poroshenko's term, too, and he was replaced by Volodymyr Zelensky. In, That's the name we all hear right now. Yeah, in 2018. Which brings us to our leaders, Putin and Zelensky. Now, Vladimir Putin is the 69-year-old president of Russia. He was raised in Soviet Russia. Putin studied law at Leningrad State University. It was there he met a guy named Antoly Sobchak, who was a business law teacher who ended up co-authoring the Russian Constitution 
and who would get himself involved in all kinds of corruption. After college, Putin joined the KGB. So imagine if the CIA, FBI, Secret Service, and every branch of mafia were all rolled into one massive organization. You pretty much got the idea of what's going on here right now. At the start of his career, Putin was stationed in Dresden, Germany. Uh, he was discreetly helping a German terrorist organization called the RAF. He did all kinds of shady stuff from spying to supplying weapons to burning documents that could ind indict leaders of the Soviet Union and East Germany around the time that the Berlin Wall fell. He resigned as a lieutenant colonel in 1991 and turned to political ambitions. From 1991 to 1996, he was head of the Committee for External Relations of the Mayor's Office in St. Petersburg. He was in charge of international, um, yeah, international business and foreign relations, where he essentially lost $93 million. Whoops. Ooh, yeah. After he traded medals for food aid that never came. Whoops. In 1996, Putin moved to Moscow and was involved with various state business dealings and where, while writing a dissertation on economics, he got caught copying 15 pages from an American textbook. So, a nice dissertation there, yeah. yeah. In 1998, he was appointed as the director of the Federal Security Service, which is what followed the KGB. A year later, he became the prime minister, and then in 1999, he became acting president after Boris Yeltsin suddenly resigned amid a scandal. Putin was elected president in 2000 with 53% of the vote. He invested in revitalizing the impoverished Russia by striking backroom deals with some very rich Russians who had a lot of political influence. These are the oligarchs that you've been hearing about. He was elected to a second term in 2004 after receiving 71% of the vote. He spent the next four years doing some pretty shady stuff, but generally just being smug and lamenting the downfall of the Soviet Union. Now, because Russian presidents are bound by term limits, Putin was replaced in 2008 by Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev. The second day he was in office, Medvedev appointed Putin prime minister. And then he recommended that Putin run for president again in 2012, which happened, and then Putin won with more than 63% of the vote. There were widespread allegations of voter fraud and a massive anti-Putin president or protest in May 2012. It was countered by an even more massive counter protest where people plainly said that they were either forced or paid to attend. Hmm. So this is typical kind of Russia, like just propaganda politics. and just yep. politics. Yeah. So it's been like this for a long time. Now, in 2012 and 2013, Putin cracked down on gays and pedophiles. He always lumped them together. And then in 2014, he made his move to seize Crimea and stir up stuff in Donetsk and Luhansk, which is the Donbass region that we talk about. And in 2015, Putin involved Russia in serious civil war. And then in 2016, he all but admitted to interfering in the U.S. elections. And that's a whole nother podcast. It reminded me, though, when I read his comments, it sounded it reminded me so much of oj simpson because it was very much a if i did it then this is how i would have done, done it, it. Yeah. yeah so in 2018 he won his fourth presidential term with over 76 percent of the vote in 2020 when covid started putin got that huge table that you see all over tv <laughs> he signed an executive order allowing him to serve two more terms as president and very interestingly, he also signed a bill giving lifetime prosecutorial immunity to any Russian ex-president. I'd just like to say that our table is not that big. No, it's not. Okay. It's, it's I don't know, what, four by four, something like that? Yeah. Um, now, in 2021, he started building up border forces after Ukraine conducted military exercise with NATO, which Putin hates. He despises NATO. He views them as a military bloc, and now we're here. So, moving on to 44-year-old Jewish President Volodymyr Zelensky, who grew up in central Ukraine. Like Putin, he has a law degree from the Kiev, or Kiev National Economic University, but that's where the similarities end, is with those law degrees. At age 17, Zelensky joined a local comedy competition team, 
and over the next few years grew in fame after creating a comedy troupe called Kvartal 95. In 2003, they started producing TV shows and became the nation's leading television producer. Zelensky entered the world of film in 2008, making several movies and eventually voicing Paddington Bear in the film's Ukrainian dubs. His biggest break, though, came in 2015 when Zelensky produced and starred in a Kvartal 95 sitcom called Servant of the People. And I'm sure by now you've all heard of it. Uh, You cannot get it in America right now. If you are listening from America, it is up for grabs, though. So I suspect that there's probably a bidding war going on over the rights, and we'll have it here eventually. Well, I hope they dub it in English. I'm I'm sure they will, or do subtitles, something. Zelensky played a high school history teacher who goes on an anti-government rant, which is recorded by a student and subsequently uploaded to YouTube. The video makes the teacher an overnight viral sensation and his students crowdfund a presidential campaign. He wins and hilarity ensues. In 2018, a political party called Servant of the People was registered with Ukraine's Ministry of Justice. Zelensky was their candidate and he ran his campaign almost entirely online, saying that he wanted to restore the Ukrainian people's trust in government and, quote, bring professional, decent people to power. Hey, we're live, so you can quote. Well, yeah, but the people that are listening still can't see my air quotes. Yeah, but they can. Oh, yeah, they can. Uh, for those of you that are that don't understand what he's talking about, we're live streaming this on TikTok right now uh, because I finally got to 1,000 viewers. Thanks, Finland. That's a whole other story. Um, but we're live streaming on TikTok, so... Um, now, and if you're watching on TikTok, if you listen to this, <laughs> it's not going to sound anything like no. what you're watching right now. It'll sound similar, but in one of the greatest examples ever of life imitating art, Zelensky won with 73% of the vote. And his major initiatives for governmental reform included reintroducing criminal liability for illegal enrichment in the parliament's agenda. They all got shot down. One of the platforms he ran on was the reunification of the Donbass regions. In 2019, Zelensky came to a preliminary deal struck with the separatists under which the Ukrainian government would respect elections held in the region in exchange for Russia withdrawing its unmarked troops. And that's where we are today, with no elections to be held in Donbass until Russian withdraws and Russia invading Ukraine under the guise that they're defending the Donbass region from Ukrainian interference and, quote, denazification, which I'm not really sure how a Jewish president needs denazified, but okay. Okay. So that's going to bring us to NATO. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time on NATO because they are playing a, a central role, certainly not to the point that Ukraine, the Ukrainian army is, but NATO is a major influencer in this as much yeah, you'll yeah. hear, you hear, I'm sure you've heard people talking about them yeah. and why doesn't NATO help and why doesn't yeah. NATO do this and NATO do that? Yeah, so we're going to explain some of that stuff, but we're going to give you a history of NATO. And as you listen to the history, you'll understand how a lot of these pieces come together and why things are the way they are right now. So let's talk about the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, better known as NATO. So I'm going to run down a list of the current NATO members. Albania, Belgium, Bulgaria, Canada, Croatia, Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, France, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Iceland, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Montenegro, the Netherlands, North Macedonia, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Spain, Turkey, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Most people think that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was founded in response to the threat posed by the Soviet Union. That's true, but it's only partially true. The whole story is that NATO's creation was part of a broader effort to serve three purposes. In February 1948, the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, with covert backing from the Soviet Union, overthrew the democratically elected government in that country. And what that did was deter Soviet expansionism, which forbidding the revival of 
nationalist militarism in Europe through a strong North American presence on the continent and encouraging European political integration. After World War II, Europe was devastated in a way that is now difficult to envision. So think of the destruction you're seeing in Ukraine right now. Now imagine that destruction over all of Europe. And that's certainly not to downplay the destruction in Ukraine right now, but just picture that across all of Europe. Approximately 36.5 million Europeans had died during World War II. 19 million of them were civilians. Refugee camps and rationing dominated daily life. In some areas, infant mortality rates were one in four. Millions of orphans wandered the burnout shells of former cities. In the German city of Hamburg alone, half a million people were homeless. In addition, communists aided by the Soviet Union were threatening elected governments across all of Europe. Then, in reaction to the democratic consolidation of West Germany, the Soviets blockaded Allied-controlled West Berlin in a bid to consolidate their hold on the German capital. The determination of France, Great Britain, and the United States during the Berlin Airlift provided future allies with a level of commitment, and that just shows the level of commitment that the West was willing to spend to keep Europe free. By now, the United States had reversed its view on its traditional policy of diplomatic isolationism. Aid provided through the U.S.-funded Marshall Plan, also known as the European Recovery Program, and other means brought about a degree of economic stabilization. European countries still needed confidence in their security, but before they would begin talking and trading with each other, military cooperation and the security it would bring would have to develop in parallel with economic and political progress. So with this in mind, several Western European democracies came together to implement various projects for greater military cooperation and collective defense, including the creation of the Western Union, not the Telegram Company, in 1948, later to become the Western European Union in 1954. In the end, it was determined that only a truly transatlantic security agreement could deter Soviet aggression while simultaneously preventing the revival of European militarism and laying the groundwork for political integration. After a lot of discussion and and debate, the North Atlantic Treaty was signed on April 4th, 1949. Now, everybody is talking about the famous Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, so let's talk about that. In the treaty's now much-discussed Article 5, the new allies agreed, quote, an armed attack against one or more of them shall be considered an attack against them all, end quote. That's exactly what it says. And following such an attack, each ally would take, and again, I quote, such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force, end quote, in response. That is word for word exactly what the treaty of Article 5 or Article 5 of the NATO treaty says. Now, there are a lot of articles of the treaty, but we need to also mention Articles 2 and Articles 3 because they're going to play a part in this in a little bit. These articles have important roles not directly relating to an attack. Article 3 is the basis for cooperation and military preparedness between the Allies. So basically what this means for the Allies is that they will train together and establish standard operating procedures, which are called STANAGs, so that all the armies can talk with each other and they can fight as one force. Now, I don't mean everybody literally speaks the same language, but more along the lines, think of doctrinal terms and procedures. Things like establishing radios that can talk to each other and, and what frequencies they will talk on. So that, that's just an example, but I, I think you're going to get an idea. It's, it's much more in-depth than that. Article 2 allows room to engage in non-military cooperation. Keeping in mind Article 3, early on the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty had created allies, but it had not created a military structure that could effectively coordinate their actions. This all changed when growing worries about the Soviet intentions culminated in the Soviets' detonation of an atomic bomb in 1949 and the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950. Now, when the Soviets detonated that bomb, that changed everything and is a central concern of what is happening in Ukraine today. 
and the effect of, of that, of the nuclear threat, is upon the West is dramatic. Not the West, but the world. Now, NATO soon gained a consolidated command structure with a military headquarters based in the Parisian suburbs of Rochencourt near Versailles. This was Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, or SHAPE, with U.S. General Dwight D. Eisenhower as its first Supreme Allied Commander Europe, or SACUR. 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 Thanks. Soon afterward, the Allies established a permanent civilian secretariat in Paris and named NATO's first secretary general, Lord Ismay of the United Kingdom. Tally-ho. With the benefit of aid and a security umbrella, political stability was gradually restored to Western Europe and the post-war economic miracle began. New allies joined NATO, Greece and Turkey in 1952, West Germany in 1955, and European political integration took its first little baby steps. In reaction to West Germany's joining NATO, the Soviet Union and its Eastern European satellite states formed the Warsaw Pact in 1955. All of Europe settled into an uneasy standoff symbolized by the construction of the Berlin Wall in 1961. Winston Churchill had already dubbed the Iron Curtain in 1946. During this time, NATO adopted the strategic doctrine of massive retaliation, or commonly referred to as mutually assured destruction, or MAD. Basically what this was, if the Soviet Union attacked NATO, attacked, NATO would respond with nuclear weapons. The intended effect of this doctrine was to deter either side from risk-taking since any attack, however small, could have and is assumed would have led to a full nuclear exchange. Limited nuclear exchange was not a serious option that was planned for. MAD was a highly controversial policy and it drove the politics of Europe for a long time, but it is what it is, and I just don't know how to put it any differently. While MAD was controversial, it did allow alliance members to focus their energies on economic growth rather than on maintaining large conventional armies. So, you know, like, like we said, everything is so complicated. There's second and third order effects to all this stuff that have to be considered and, and taken into account. NATO took its first steps as a, uh, towards a political as well as a military role. In 1956, the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik satellite and brought to light the Allies' greater need for scientific cooperation. In the 1960s, the uneasy but stable status quo began to change. Cold War tensions reignited as Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev and U.S. President John F. Kennedy narrowly avoided conflict in Cuba and as American involvement in Vietnam escalated. By the start of the 70s, what had been primarily a defense-based organization came to take on a new phenomenon called detente, or a relaxation of tensions between the Western and Eastern blocs, driven by a grudging acceptance of the status quo, which just sounds so positive when you say it out loud. It is what it is, and we'll all just learn to deal with it. During the 60s, NATO and SHAPE unexpectedly moved to a new home. In March 1966, France announced its intention to withdraw from NATO's integrated military command structure and requested the removal of all Allied headquarters from French territory. There were a lot of sad soldiers when that happened. I bet. A new shape headquarters was established in Casto, Belgium in March 1967, and NATO headquarters moved to Brussels in October of the same year. Contrary to popular belief, France remained within the alliance and consistently emphasized its intention to stand together with its allies in the event of hostilities. France's primary beef was France wanting to maintain control of French forces and France's disagreement on nuclear deterrence. They, their position was basically, we'll use nukes when we feel like it's necessary. And France also proved to be among the alliance's most valuable force contributors during later peacekeeping operations. Détente had many faces. West German Chancellor Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik sought to encourage European stability through closer relations between Eastern and Western Europe. U.S. President John F. Kennedy's strategy of flexible response sought to replace massive retaliation, or MAD, the absolute dichotomy of peace or total nuclear war. Adopted in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis, flexible response enhanced NATO's conventional defense posture by offering military responses short of a full nuclear exchange in the event of a conflict. So y'all can see where this is headed right now. 
Also during this time, a reporter entitled The Future Task, a report entitled The Future Task of the Alliance, delivered in December 1967 to the North Atlantic Council by Belgium Foreign Minister Pierre Harmel, recommended that NATO should have a political track promoting dialogue and detente between NATO and the Warsaw Pact countries. The role of NATO had become not merely to preserve the status quo, but to help change it. The Harmel Report helped lay the foundation for the convening of the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe in 1973. Two years later, the conference led to the negotiation of the Helsinki Final Act. The act bound its signatories, including the Soviet Union and members of the Warsaw Pact, to respect the fundamental freedoms of their citizens, including the freedom of thought, conscience, religion, um, religion or belief. Soviet rulers internally played down these clauses within the act, attaching more importance to the Western recognition of the Soviet role in Eastern Europe. Eventually, however, the Soviets came to learn that when they bound themselves to a powerful and potentially subver- that they had bound themselves to a potentially subversive idea in their mind. If there was not enough danger of war in Europe up to now, things were about to really heat up. So, that's why we're covering so much on NATO because it it all plays a part. It's a lot. Hopefully it, you're still lot. with us and yeah. hopefully you're not just completely bored out of your mind. It's just there's I find a it lot fascinating. Of, there's a there's a lot of history to get through. You know, I said earlier things were about to really heat up. Doesn't that just sound wrong when we're talking about the Cold War yeah, and it, heating up? I yeah. Okay. Uh, to my, I mean, I've always thought of the cold, like in my mind, the Cold War is just, I think of a period of like gray and just ugh. It got nothing hot. hot or warm about it. Okay. All right. Anyway. So anyway, the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the Soviet deployment of SS-20 Sabre ballistic missiles in Europe led to the suspension of detente. To counter the Soviet deployment, allies made the dual-track decision to deploy nuclear-capable Pershing-2 and ground-launched cruise missiles in Western Europe while continuing negotiations with the Soviets. The deployment was not scheduled to begin until 1983. In the meantime, the allies hoped to achieve an arms control agreement that would eliminate the need for the weapons. Lacking the hoped-for agreement with the Soviets, NATO members suffered internal discord when deployment began in 1983. Following the ascent of Mikhail Gorbachev as Soviet's prime minister in 1985, the United States and the Soviet Union signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces, or the INF Treaty, in 1987, eliminating all nuclear and ground-launched ballistic and cruise missiles with intermediate ranges. This is now regarded as an initial indication that the Cold War was coming to an end. The 1980s also saw the accession of NATO's first new member since 1955. In 1982, a newly democratic Spain joined NATO. And by the mid-1980s, most international observers believed that Soviet communism had lost the intellectual battle with the West. Dissidents had dismantled the ideological supports of communist regimes, a process aided in retrospect by the Soviet Union's own ostensible adherence to human rights principles outlined by the Helsinki Final Act, which we mentioned earlier. By the late 1980s, the communist government of Poland found itself forced to negotiate with the formerly repressed independent trade union, trade union Solidarity and its leader Lech Walesa, soon other democratic activists in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union itself began to demand those very same rights. So the, the groundswell has started to happen with uh, Lech, and it just, it just started to happen. But there were also a lot of concerns. Would a united Germany be neutral? What would become of nuclear weapons in former Soviet republics? Would nationalism once again take a large role in European politics? By this time, the, econ- the economies in the Warsaw Pact were disintegrating. They were just literally falling apart. The Soviet Union was spending three times as much as the United States on defense with an economy that was one-third the size of the United States. Mikhail Gorbachev came to power with the intention of fundamentally reforming the communist system. When the East German regime began to collapse in 1989, the Soviet Union did not intervene, reversing the Brezhnev Doctrine. This time, the Soviets chose a long-run reform over a short-run control 
that was increasingly beyond their capabilities, setting in motion a train of events that led to the eventual breakup of the Warsaw Pact. The fall of the Berlin Wall on November 9, 1989, seemed to proclaim a new era of open markets, democracy, and peace, and the Allies reacted with incredulous joy as emboldened demonstrators overthrew the Eastern European communist governments. The existence of NATO, with all this happening, people started to question, do we really need NATO? Well, NATO endured because while the Soviet Union was no more, the alliance's two other original, if unspoken, mandates still held to deter the rise of militant nationalism and to provide the foundation of collective security that would encourage democratization and political integration in Europe. Articles 2 and 3. The definition of Europe had merely moved eastward. Before the consolidation of peace and security could begin, however, one huge unknown haunted European politics and remained to be seen. Since the Franco-Prussian War, Europe had struggled to come to terms with a united Germany at its heart. The incorporation of a reunified Germany into the alliance put this most ancient and destructive of dilemmas to rest. East Germany and West Germany ceased to exist and just became Germany. In 1991, as in 1949, NATO was to be the foundation stone for a larger pan-European security architecture. In December 1991, the Allies established the North Atlantic Cooperation Council, renamed the Euro the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Council in 1997. This forum brought the Allies together with their Central European, Eastern European, and Central Asian neighbors for joint consultations. This would include Ukraine. Many of these newly liberated countries, or partners as they were soon called, saw a relationship with NATO as a fundamental to their own aspirations for stability, democracy, and European integration. Cooperation also extended southward. In 1994, the Alliance founded the Mediterranean Dialogue with six non-member Mediterranean countries, Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Mauritania, Morocco, and Tunisia, with Algeria also joining in 2000. The Dialogue seeks to contribute to security and stability in the Mediterranean through better mutual understanding. This new cooperation was soon put to the test. The collapse of communism had given way to the rise of nationalism and ethnic violence, particularly in the former Yugoslavia. Now, we're going to bring this up because this has impact and kind of why what's happening now. Yeah. Um, the Cold War did bring a stabilized balancing act within the Warsaw Pact, not saying that the Warsaw Pact was good, but the Soviets exerted a lot of control over a its satellite countries and maintained stability in its own way. At first, allies hesitated to intervene in what was perceived as a Yugoslav civil war. Later, though, the conflict came to be seen as a war of aggression and ethnic cleansing, and the alliance decided to act. Initially, NATO offered its full support to United Nations efforts to end war crimes, including direct military action in the form of a naval embargo. Soon, the enforcement of a no-fly zone led to airstrikes against heavy weapons violating UN resolutions. Finally, NATO carried out a nine-day air campaign in September 1995 that played a major role in ending the conflict. In December of that year, NATO deployed a UN-mandated multinational force of 60,000 soldiers to help implement the Dayton Peace Agreement and to create the conditions for a self-sustaining peace. I remember when that was signed. It was a big deal. In 2004, NATO handed over this role to the European Union. And you can also go visit the Dayton Peace Museum if you're ever in town. So some people might be thinking right now, so... Why isn't this happening in Ukraine right now? Why doesn't NATO get involved to that extent? The short answer is Russia was not on the ground in the Balkans, so NATO was not engaging in armed conflict with Russian troops. That makes all the difference as to why NATO is not on the ground in Ukraine. And it's, it, you know, morally, a lot of people think that NATO should be there, but I'm not going to get into the politics. Like we said, the purpose of this show is just to explain right. the facts. And that is why NATO is not there, because There's, they would be engaging directly with, with I almost said Soviet, with Russian, <laughs> with Russian soldiers. 
The Yugoslav conflict and other conflicts in the Caucasus and elsewhere made clear that the post-Cold War power vacuum was a source of dangerous instability. And we're figuring that out now. (laughs) Mechanisms for partnership had to be strengthened in a way that would allow non-NATO countries to cooperate with the alliance to reform still-evolving democratic and military institutions to relieve their strategic isolation. And that's why we had to bring up all this stuff with NATO to get to this point right here. As part of this evolving effort, Allies created the Partnership for Peace Program, or PFP, in 1994. The Partnership for Peace allowed non-NATO countries or partners to share information with NATO allies and to modernize their militaries in line with modern democratic standards. Partners were encouraged to choose their own level of involvement with the alliance. The path to full membership would remain open to those who decided to pursue it. This process reached an important milestone at the 1999 Washington Summit when three former partners, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary, took their seats as full alliance members following their completion of a political and military reform program. Ukraine, while in the Partnership for Peace program, is not a NATO member. And I suggest that you research the requirements to be a full member of NATO because there's a lot to it. Yeah. Interestingly, some of the other partnership for um, the partnership for peace program is one of the things that I kind of looked into when I was doing my my TikToks. Mm-hmm. Ireland is a mem- is a, they're not yep. in NATO. They're a partnership for peace partner. Yep, which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So let me just take some of those requirements. I'm going to break it down as simply as I can, but would encourage you to go back and read all of it. So as simply as I can, joining NATO must have consensus of all member nations. Some nations are wary or were wary of allowing Ukraine to join NATO, and they weren't keen on allowing Ukraine in into NATO. So here goes the most simple explanation to a very complicated explanation that I can muster. Former Ukrainian President Viktor Yushchenko wanted to join NATO. However, his successor, Viktor Yanukovych, dropped the effort and chose closer ties with Russia. NATO's reluctance was political with reasons ranging with the Crimean situation. Because of Russia's longstanding obsession with Ukraine, some countries said they, that did not promote peace and stability in Europe. The next thing I'm going to talk about Doesn't sound very nice, but it needs to be mentioned so you get the full understanding. One of the three main criteria is that a NATO country must demonstrate a commitment to democracy, individual liberty, and and support for the rule of law. Mm. This was the major point of contention for some NATO members. In a a 2020 analysis by Transparency International, a corruption watchdog organization ranked Ukraine 117 out of 180 countries, which was the lowest member of any NATO member. So that caused a lot of concern that they weren't meeting the NATO standards. And I will be really interested to see after after Ukraine wins the war. Um, first of all, if Vladimir or, um, if Volodymyr Zelensky runs again, and secondly, if he does. From everything that I've read, because he is he is not a politician and he doesn't have a ton of political ties, he is not as corrupt as former leaders are. Yeah, let, so I'll be really curious to see how this plays out in yeah, the future. And, and let's be clear, he was doing his best to rid Ukraine of the corruption. Oh, absolutely. But there was so much there prior There's to him. Lot. It's not going to happen overnight. No. And, and Ukraine is still a very young nation. Yeah. I, I mean, really, if you think about it, they really didn't become... They were they were independent in 1991 with the fall of the Soviet Union. But as far as being truly, truly independent, that didn't really happen until... 2014. Yeah. So they're really a baby, baby nation. Yeah. So let's move on. Okay. The September 11th, 2001 terrorist attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon demonstrated to the Allies that political disorder in distant parts of the globe could have terrible consequences at home. For the first time in its history, NATO invoked its collective defense clause, which is Article 5. 
NATO took action and came to defend the United States against an attack. In this case, the enemy was the Al-Qaeda terrorist group, which had used Afghanistan as a base to export instability to the industrialized world, adopting hijacked airliners as improvised weapons of mass destruction to kill thousands of civilians. Subsequent attacks, including the Istanbul bombings in November 2003, the attack of the Madrid commuter train system on March 11, 2004, and the public transport system in London on July 7, 2005, made clear that violent extremists were determined to target civilian populations. In the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, a coalition of countries, including many NATO allies, militarily intervened in Afghanistan in the fall of 2001. Meanwhile, NATO continued to accept new members and build new partnerships. Finally, subsequent rounds of enlargement brought more allies into the fold. Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Slovenia, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania in 2004, Croatia and Albania in 2009, Montenegro in 2017, and North Macedonia in 2020. Should we mention why NATO is not committing to a no-fly zone? Yes, we should. And here's the simple answer. Many think that a no-fly zone would not be an armed response. But, I'm but, so glad. I'm going to interrupt you real quick. I haven't interrupted you much at all this episode. I, If you are pro no-fly zone, please, please, please listen to this next part because I was all about the no-fly zone until Steve was like, no, you're an idiot. Listen to me. I, I didn't say that. You pretty much said that. No, I didn't. <laughs> so, I, just, I just explained to you this, why it wouldn't work. This is very important, and I don't think a lot of people recognize why we cannot have a no-fly zone. So, so please listen, because this is really important. So I digress. Many think that a no-fly zone wouldn't be an armed response, but that just isn't how it works. A no-fly zone requires people on the ground. It would require anti-air defense systems such greater than what a, a stinger missile can do. Hmm. They're just, and, and the, the type of systems that they would have to employ, they're just not the type of thing that you could take untrained people and say, here it is, and go and operate. It, it just doesn't work that way. These systems are very complex and complicated. If a NATO aircraft was shot down, it would require action on whoever was shooting it. So if a if a Russian anti-aircraft battery shot at a at a NATO airplane, NATO the pilots would have full authority and right to self-defense and they would be allowed to engage that, which would mean a violation of NATO treaty. Yeah, it yeah. Would, which which it would be NATO versus Russian in direct armed conflict at that time. Right. So I know it's not I know, I know that many people are demanding this but it's much more complicated than it seems in flying over Ukraine and the NATO members right now with Russia already threatening the use of nukes NATO and Europe is at this point not willing to risk World War 3 and a nuclear war right now and I, I know that's a hard thing for a lot of people to take. It is very hard as you're watching children being murdered yep. in the street. But I think no matter this, how much. This is one of those times where as much as I hate to say it because I hate politicians, you have to trust your government and trust your intelligence systems that they know much more than what they are telling us. And just and you just have to trust your intelligence systems and trust that we are things are happening on on the inside that you don't know about. Just today, United States decided to start or stop importing Russian oil. Yeah, which is a thing that they've been talking about, talking about, talking about. But you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. So again, with no fly zones and all of the the, the things behind the curtain, we don't know about. You just got to trust. Yeah, and that's a hard and that's a hard thing to do because a lot of people right now don't trust government and they I don't, don't trust the them. intelligence. But it's just, it's it just, and yeah. I hate to say it's the way it is, but the rest of the world is not willing to risk millions and millions and millions of people dying right. in a nuclear war. Yes, you know, maybe as they get more intelligence or something becomes more clear, maybe they can Things figure out change. how they can change. But yeah. as of right now. 
That's where we're at. You have to trust the intelligence. Okay, so let's talk about the EU. According to the European Union's official website, the Union's purpose is to promote peace, establish a unified economic and monetary system, promote inclusion and combat discrimination, break down barriers to trade and borders, encourage technological and scientific developments, champion environmental protection, and, among others, promote goals like a competitive global market and social progress. Well, that's a lot to do. So to put it simply... The European Union is a coalition of 27 European countries designed to tear down trade, economic, and social barriers and promote flourishing in these areas. So, yay for everybody. Established in 1993, the European Union's headquarters are currently located in Brussels, Belgium. A lot of stuff is located in Belgium. Don't ask me why. The, um, what is it, the... The the, the Hague. The bank thing. Yeah. Is in Belgium. Yeah. Um, anyway, Swift is in Belgium. In the post-war or the post-World War II world, the European Union has sought to bolster the individual and collective economic and social well-being of the countries involved, as well as establish a cohesive global marketplace that tr- promotes trade and other social values. Still, the European Union functions by a three-pronged governing system, including a council, a parliament, and a commission, and they use a common co- currency called the euro. Despite not being officially formed until 1993, the European Union's foundations actually reach farther back to 1957 when the European Economic Community was established. The EEC was formed out of a previous group called the European Coal and Steel Community, which had its own start in 1951. And sounds weird to me. I'm sorry. When I think of coal, I think of Kentucky. I don't think of Europe. But there's a lot of that kind of stuff in countries like Ukraine. Among other things, the EEC was designed to help break down trade barriers between other countries in Europe, protect from private trade agreements that could diminish competition, and establish common agricultural and trade agreements and standards. The countries that comprised the EEC included Ireland, the UK, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, West Germany, and then later East Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain, and Greece. However... It wasn't until 1993 that the EEC morphed into the European Union following the new Maastricht 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 Treaty. Maastricht, Maastricht, yeah. Also known as the Treaty on European Union. That's better. (laughs) Additionally, the Treaty of Lisbon, enacted in 2009, gave the European Union more broad powers that included being authorized to sign international treaties increased border patrol, and other security and enforcement provisions. On February 7th, 1992, the European Union was officially formed via the... Maastricht. Treaty. I can, oh. I can say this. Okay. I'll say the Ukrainian names if you stick with the German stuff. The treaty was, <laughs> the treaty was comprised of three principal components. The European Communities, Security and Foreign Policy and cohesive domestic affairs and justice standards. The new treaty broadened the new-founded EU scope, which now includes both economic and social issues like education, public health, technology, development, and environmental protection, to name a few. And perhaps most significantly, the treaty put into motion a common monetary policy which united Europe under a common currency called the euro. Additionally, the treaty established economic standards including debt and budget requirements in relation to each country's gross domestic product as well as inflation levels. Despite some countries failing to meet some of the standards detailed within the treaty like Italy and Belgium, they were still inducted into the monetary union. The European Union was not the same thing as the Eurozone, which created in 2005 is simply the collection of all countries that use the euro. But despite the common pledge of EU members to eventually switch over to using euros, only 18 of the current 27 used the euro as of 2018. So at that time, there were 28. That counts that UK withdrew from the EU on January 31st of 2020. As mentioned earlier, the European Union is governed by three main bodies, the EU Council, the EU Parliament, and the EU Commission. The Council's main job is to create and propose new policies and legislation for the European Union, 
It operates under a different EU president every six months. The parliament then debates and passes the laws proposed by the council, electing members once every five years. Finally, the commission enforces and operates the laws for the European Union. Additionally, the European Central Bank services the EU's financial needs and manages things like inflation rates and foreign exchange reserves. Individual citizens have a say in the democratically structured union. According to the official site, citizens have a variety of ways to contribute, including by giving their views on EU policies during their development or suggesting improvements to existing laws and policies. The European Citizens Initiative empowers citizens to have a greater say on EU politics that affect their lives. Citizens can also submit complaints and inquiries concerning the application of EU law. So in context of what's going on now, I'm sure that the EU email is just blowing up like crazy. Yeah. To ensure free passage between countries, the Schengen area was established for residents of certain countries, including some non-EU countries. Some countries in the Schengen area are Austria, Belgium, Estonia, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malta, Netherlands, Portugal, Slovakia, Slovenia, Spain, Czech Republic, Denmark, Hungary, Poland, and Sweden, as well as non-EU countries, Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway, and Switzerland. In addition, Bulgaria, Croatia, and Romania are pending approval to enter the Schengen area as well. So basically what this means, residents of these countries are allowed to pass with other countries in the Schengen area, and it's much easier. They don't have to show their passports. Used to, if you would have to go from Germany to France, you had to stop at control and show your passport. Now, Ukraine is not a member of the EU. Okay, so let me ask you this. Sort of the way that um, a the, the Partnership for Peace is sort of a gateway into NATO. Mm-hmm. Is that the same with the Schengen area? I don't think so. No, it just no. is it's just, coincidental? Yeah. Okay. So what will happen once there's an end to all this, assuming Putin is still alive? There's no question that he's committed war crimes and lots of them, so he will have to answer for them. This means that he will go before an organization called the International Criminal Court. The ICC was established in Rome in 1998 after Trinidad and Tobago requested that the UN set up a formal court and trial process, which had not existed before then. It became active in 2002. Previously, tribunal-like courts were only established on an as-needed basis, but the EU agreed that a permanent body was a good idea and they adopted a binding policy of support in 2011. There are 123 countries party to the Rome Statute. Some 40 countries never signed the treaty, including China, Ethiopia, India, Indonesia, Iraq, North Korea, duh, Go figure. Right. Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. Several dozen others signed the statute, but their legislatures never ratified it. And these include Egypt, Iran, Israel, Russia, Sudan, Syria, and the United States. The ICC is based in The Hague, a city in the Netherlands that hosts many international institutions and has field offices in several countries. The court carries out its investigative work through the office of the prosecutor. They have 18 judges, each from a different member country and elected by member states. It requires its members to seek a gender-balanced bench, and the judiciary must include representatives of each of the United Nations' five regions. Judges and prosecutors are elected to non-renewable nine-year terms. The president and two vice presidents of the court are elected from among the judges, and they, along with the registry, handle the administration of the court. The court has jurisdiction over four categories of crimes under international law. Genocide, or the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. War crimes, or grave breaches of the laws of war, which include the Geneva Convention's prohibitions on torture, the use of child soldiers, and attacks on civilian targets such as hospitals or schools, which is one of the main war crimes that Putin has committed. Crimes against humanity, or violations committed as part of large-scale attacks against civilian populations, including murder, rape, imprisonment, slavery, and torture. And crimes of aggression, or the threat of 
armed force by a state against the territorial integrity, sovereignty, or political independence of another state, also committed by Russia, or violations of the UN Charter. The court can open an investigation into possible crimes in one of three ways. A member country can refer a situation within its own territory to the court, the UN Security Council can refer a situation, or the prosecutor can launch an investigation into a member state proprio moto or on one's own initiative. The court can investigate individuals from non-member states if the alleged offenses took place in a member state's territory. If the non-member state accepts the court's jurisdiction or with the Security Council's authorization. To open an investigation, the prosecutor must conclude after a preliminary examination that the alleged crimes are of sufficient gravity. Once an investigation is open, the prosecutor's office typically sends the investigators and other staff to collect evidence. Any arrest warrant or summons must be approved by the judiciary based on information provided by the prosecutor. A group of pretrial judges ultimately decide whether a case should be brought to the Brought to trial, defendants may seek outside counsel to represent them paid for, if necessary, by the court. Convictions and sentences require the vote of at least two out of three judges on the trial bench. Convicted defendants may appeal to the ICC's appellate bench, which is made up of five judges. The ICC is intended to complement rather than replace national courts. It can only act when national courts have been found unable or unwilling to try a case. Additionally, it only exercises jurisdiction over crimes that occurred after its statutes took effect in 2002. Also, it doesn't prosecute nations. That's the UN's International Court of Justice, only individuals. Now, some things to note. Court proceedings can be brought on in one of two ways. Either a national government or the UN Security Council can refer cases for investigation. Now, Russia permanent member of the UN Security Council has veto power over council actions. So right there, that, that's probably reason enough to think that Putin is not going to come up against the ICC unless he is overthrown. And his people give him up. Yes. Also, and this one kind of sucks, anyone accused of a crime in the jurisdiction of the court, which includes countries that are members of the ICC, can be tried. But while both Russia and Ukraine have signed the treaty, neither has ratified it. So technically, neither one of them is members of the ICC. But I'm pretty sure that by even signing the treaty, the, na- the nations recognize the ICC's authority. Well, I think so they could also some come. Real gray area there. I think they could also come up with the individual tribunals, too. Yeah, but I don't. I don't know about that. For I, sure. Yeah, I don't know about that. But there's there's some gray area. I know um, Ukraine in the past has shown evidence that they do accept the ICC's reach. Russia, I don't know. Another significant thing to note is that the court does not try in absentia, so Putin would either have to be handed over by Russia or arrested outside Russian borders. Both of which at this point seem unlikely but not impossible not with that 40 foot table yeah he's sitting behind and unfortunately icc proceedings run at a snail's pace they've already opened an investigation but even preliminary investigations can last several years and that's before prosecution can even begin so there you have it that's a lot to take in it's a lot and and that's why it's so complicated and like we tried to break this down we tried to make it simple. We tried to make it simple. It wasn't. It wasn't. It's it's a very complicated situation. So you can imagine what all the diplomats are doing, and just warfare is complicated I would in itself. Hate to be a politician. Yeah, I would hate it. Yeah. All right, Kim. How do people get hold of us? All right. If you're watching on TikTok, listen up. Uh, you can find us at a lost hour at gmail.com. That's our email address. And there will be a link to this episode there. Yes. On our email? No, not on our email. Yeah, I'm that's sorry. our e- that's our email address. We also have social media. Facebook, Twitter, TikTok. Uh, we don't have TikTok. I have my own personal TikTok, which we are live streaming right now. Um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter is what I meant to say. And if you want to listen to us, 
you can find us on all the major platforms, Apple Music, um, iHeartRadio, iHeartRadio, all of Stitcher, them. all of them, all of the things. Yep. So. All right. Tell a buddy, bring a friend. Yep. So if you like the episode, leave us a favorable rating. Mm-hmm. If you didn't like the episode, eh, just be nice <laughs> and move on. No. If you have if you have any <laughs> questions about any of this stuff, please feel free to write to us. Again, it's alosthour at gmail.com. I do have a couple of resources. Um, Kiev Independent, spelled K-Y-I-V, Independent, has been one of the, it's an independent um, newspaper out of Ukraine that has really gotten a lot of accolades over the last week and a half as far as their journalistic integrity and being on top of what's going on in the war um, from, you know, a Ukrainian point of view. So if you're if you're more interested, definitely check out Kiev Independent. All right. Anything else? I think that's about it. All right. So from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources for this week's show include Wikipedia, the United Nations, the Council on Foreign Relations, the International Criminal Court, CNN, NATO International, thestreet.com, and New York Times.